We continue on in John chapter 6, and so if you will open your Bibles to John chapter 6. And I want to conclude a section of this before we look at the really the last section of it, which means that uh, this is the seventh uh, in eight parts of uh, our studying of this particular chapter. And we may wonder why, what is so important about chapter six, but that uh, Jesus declares in a very powerful way, the fact that he is the bread of life, the bread of God from heaven, more than ever clearly identifying himself as the Messiah of Israel, and answering the uh, mockings of the critics who would focus only their attention on the fact that they knew him as the son of Joseph the carpenter of Nazareth. And, and this is where we left off last time and, and I just want to pick up uh, with verse 47 reading the text and then we'll kind of go back and explain what was going on. Here in verse 47 it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. This is in the present tense. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have everlasting life. And, and really the understanding and the question is, do you understand what it means to believe in him? Not just to believe in him in in, 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 uh, in your mind, you have to believe and trust and depend upon him with all of your heart. And then he says, I am, the, I am that bread of life. So that is going to be kind of uh, defined for us uh, and has been and will be again in just a moment. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. In our previous study then, Jesus responded to the murmurings of the suspicious and critical religionist Jews who considered the words of the Lord blasphemous. When he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. What he had said previously to the crowd that had been witness to his miracle of the distribution of the bread and fish was expanded now to this new group of listeners. But first, listen once again to what Jesus had been teaching up to this point. In verse 37, so we're going to go kind of up and down in this particular chapter. Verse 37, Jesus said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. That's a tremendous promise, and it's a tremendous blessing for all of us. 
to know the very heart of the Lord that, uh, that, uh, that obeys his Father and says that all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will, I will in no wise cast out. For I, ha- uh, for I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus had a wonderful way of of repeating himself to emphasize what he came to say, so that no one would miss the truth of what he was saying. And then, of course, to those religionists who had come murmuring and complaining about the things that he said. This is what he said to them in verse 44. He said, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And these are verses we've already studied, and we're not going to take a lot of time on them. But then there came a statement that confirms the principle that we saw last time in Jesus' words becoming more obscure to those who would not listen and believe. Now you have to jump down to verse 54 to see that. Of course, we'll be looking at that next time. But in verse 54, Jesus said, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then much later, Jesus would restate and confirm his own words as pertaining to those who would reject the Messiah in John chapter 12, verses 44 through 50. I'm just laying down a foundation for our understanding what we're going to study today. So later on, Jesus would say in John 12, verse 44, Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. Remember that Jesus has said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words has one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me. He gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And we emphasized the importance of Jesus' obedience to the Father last time. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore... Even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. And you'll notice that I've emphasized the word Father here. And you'll see why in a moment. Two more points from last week's text. The prophecy given from Jesus, quoting from Isaiah 54, which we find actually in verse 45, the little phrase that says, and they shall be all taught of God, was directed to the restored city of Jerusalem in the prophecy of Isaiah. 
It, it really was and is a kingdom age prophecy anticipating the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. This did not happen, you see, in other words, what we see here happening or what we see here being prophesied did not happen after the return from the Babylonian captivity. Even though Ezra and Nehemiah, the scribes, and even the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and Joel all made a valiant effort to re-educate and to reinstill the returned captives in the things of God and in the Word of God. But it wasn't fulfilled then. It will be fulfilled at the coming, or the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to establish the kingdom of, of God on earth. So in a nutshell, over the course of the 400-year intertestamental period, which would be from the, the last spoken prophet to, to the birth of Christ, uh, and then by the time of Christ, those teachings, the teachings from the Word of God, the teachings from the prophets and all had degenerated. The teachings, I'm not talking about the Word, the Word never degenerates, it's the teaching of the Word. It degenerated, it, it deteriorated, and it disintegrated into rabbinic teachings. Not to say all rabbinic teachings is bad, but in, in, in this case, it, it, had, it had weakened the, uh, the Word of God in the sense that uh, what they were doing was now uh, not teaching the, the Word properly because they had effectively annulled and invalidated in many cases the truth of the Word of God. And so the Lord's use of the verse from Isaiah was treated as messianic prophecy. The bottom line is that had the Jews accepted Jesus as Messiah, the promise of Isaiah would have been fulfilled. But we already knew that it wouldn't at that moment, at that moment of time. Why? Because we remember that it says, He came unto His own, John 1. He came unto His own and His own received Him not. So that was already known. Now, these Jews that came to Jesus, they had mistakenly identified Joseph as the father of Jesus, though he was, in fact, his, his early his stepfather. But they identified Joseph as the father of Jesus and made it the basis for their unbelief. Jesus was setting the record straight in referring to God as his father, but made it clear that only the Son, he which is of God, has seen the Father. That was verse 46. Only the Son has seen the Father. And as a, mem as a member of the triune God, Jesus had seen the Father. And really is the only one who has seen the Father. And so the Lord's words were a clear claim to His deity and marked the fact that the incarnation, Jesus becoming flesh, did not change the Lord's personality. Just because He took on flesh doesn't mean that now He's a totally different personality. No, he's the same person. Becoming human did not change his identity. He had existed eternally as God the Son. So now I, I want to bring to mind something that some, sometimes happens in, in our own day and time, but uh, and actually happens a lot in the church, you know. Uh, you ever heard the statement, don't confuse me with the facts? Hey, Jesus, don't confuse me with the facts. What were the facts? Let's go back to verses 47 and 48. Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. 
I am that bread of life. With fearless integrity and divine authority, Jesus declared to this skeptical, disbelieving audience the matter of his facts. Ignoring how unpleasant and dense these people were. Let's remember that facts can be stubborn and don't just go away at the drop of a hat. And first came the most basic fact, what Jesus said in verse 47, verily, verily, I say unto you. This is, this is so important for us to understand. To understand it, at least in terms of we, we ourselves can understand. He said, I, I am telling you the truth. This is as if Jesus had placed his hand on the scriptures and raised his right hand and said, I am telling you, just as they do in courts, you know. I am telling you, truthfully. When a person would say that, people understood that he is at least telling him the truth, but, you know, he better stand on his truth. And Jesus certainly would be the one to stand on his truth. I am telling you the truth, that he that believes on me has everlasting life. And we can just see these guys just shaking their heads wildly over, over, their de- over, over his declaration. You know, I'm not going to show you right now because I might hurt myself. Ah, doing all kinds of stuff just to hear you know ah, I don't want to hear it ah, you know they got you know it probably could be very violent <laughs> so we, we can just see them just going crazy about this but remember that remember that they were blinded they were blinded by their awareness of Jesus family and his family life now his family life was exceptional in fact his family life was probably very perfect <laughs> because of him and because of the devotion of his, of his mother and his father, his stepfather Joseph, who loved God and served God. But it was their awareness of his family as they knew him. They knew his mother. They knew his father. They knew his siblings. And they knew where he lived. But that's all they knew. Because as I mentioned last time, they failed to check the scriptures. Born of a virgin. Born in Bethlehem. All the major prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And even though we find recorded in, in the other gospels that more than likely some of these same detractors had described Jesus as a madman or worse, demon-possessed. The fact was so much simpler. The the fact was so much simpler. Jesus was was speaking the truth and they needed to believe it. The use of the words, as I said, verily, verily, strongly affirmed the sober truth of what he was proclaiming. But then then you need to add this question. Listen, Listen carefully. You need to ask this question. How could they account for his miracles? How could they account for his miracles from the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry? Because they were certainly happening. There was evidence of these things happening. 
And there was talk by people who had seen those things happen spreading throughout all of the land. Which brings them and us back to a broader fact that Jesus had been proclaiming all along in his discourse. The fact of what we see here in verse 48, I am that bread of life. But then he says to them, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. The reference to their father's manna points back to what amounted to a demand for Jesus to bring manna from heaven as a sign. I'd like for you to turn back over to John 6, verse 30 and following. John 6, verse 30. And remember this exchange. They said, therefore, unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What does thou work? Show us a sign. Show us something. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. You, you, you see now how, the, how the, the questions that they ask lead to them stating this. What are they saying? Well, our fathers <laughs> ate manna in the desert. It's kind of like saying, okay, now if they had manna and you say who you are, you know, then how about you giving us manna? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you. And once again, you see, verily, verily. I'm just I'm telling you the truth here. Moses gave you not that bread from heaven. You see how tradition leads from God giving them bread from heaven to Moses giving them bread from heaven. Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. They weren't really saying God gave them bread, but it was because of Moses. He said, Moses gave you not the bread from heaven, but uh, that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he. Notice, the bread of God is he. It's not it, it's, it's a he. The bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Referring again to himself. And then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Now, are, are they really saying give us this bread because they're saying... Because of you? No. We want bread. Pan. Lechem. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. Now notice how clear. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. So we have to ask, what permanent profit would result from this? The fathers who ate the manna were dead. And again, Jesus made it clear. Moses didn't give it to you. God gave it to you. But still, they ate of what God gave, and, now, and they're still dead. By the way, you all do know what manna means, right? The word manna, it, it, just, it just means, what is this? 
What is this? But those who partook of the bread which is the Son of God would not die spiritually, for the very life of God was theirs. Simply, the very life of God was theirs if they partook of the bread of life. It is a sadly interesting fact that people run to and fro throughout their existence looking for an abundant eternal life beyond the physical in all sorts of places, philosophies, political parties, religions, mystical experiences. And yet Jesus makes it so simple. He says to, he says to come to him. Receive him into your life. Believe upon him. And you will have everlasting life now. Now. Not later. Now. It is as the Apostle Paul had said in the book of Romans chapter 5 verses 19 through 21. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. That of course is speaking of the first man Adam. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. The obedience of one, speaking of Jesus. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. The manna that God fed the children of Israel in the wilderness met their physical needs for a time, but their bodies still died. Their bodies still died. Now, now when we speak of physical death, we, we are talking about the separation of our, of our consciousness from our bodies. But when we speak of spiritual death, now think about this. When we speak of Spiritual death, we're talking about a separation of our consciousness from God. That's, that's an even greater tragedy. Sin has done that. Sin has done that. And, and, and I'm here to tell you that the days and times in which we live in a lot of the church of Jesus Christ today, we, we, haven't, we haven't gotten that concept how bad sin is. In fact, in some places, sin isn't a very big issue with people. Primarily because they've put the word of God aside. Well, we're all sinners, so, you know, God will forgive us. But it's the attitude that we place upon that which has caused such a problem in the world for generations from the fall in Genesis chapter 3. I mean, let's face it, if sin has done this, isn't it a bad thing? Isn't it a destructive thing? The reason why people who will not receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, and when they die, they are separated from God. That, that, that's because of sin. What, why do we glorify it? Why do we make light of it? 
sin has done that, and Jesus came to restore that separation by paying in full the penalty for our sins. Peter put it this way. He said in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, made alive by the Spirit. The fact that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, which of course leads us to the cross of Calvary, brings us back now to our text in John chapter 6. Because here in verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. I am the living bread. Now that is a significant statement, you see, because if we just consider bread itself... Not talking about manna so much, but just bread that you yourselves can make and, or you yourselves can buy in the store. We, we know something about that kind of bread. It's, it's, it, it gives us a little bit of life while we're living, but, you know, then we have to keep eating it, you know, until, you know, we can't eat anymore, you know, whatever. But the point is that to make bread, things have to die. The wheat, you know, grows up in stalks and, you know, there's some life to it, but then you have to take it, then you got to crush it, and then you got to do all kinds of other things, you know, to take that which is now dead, because it's not connected to the vine or it's not connected to the plant anymore, it's dead, and then you eat it, and then you have a little bit of life and nutrition from it, but then, again, you can't just count on that one time that you eat that bread and then you're okay. But Jesus is totally different. As the bread of life, because he is the living bread. You see the contrast now. And even manna that was given by God, they ate it and yet they still died. So he says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, he is speaking to people who are supposed to know that God gives more than just physical life, that there is a life to come. But there's a word here that now brings even more confusion to these detractors. It's the word flesh. And just as they probably said to Jesus, Jesus, don't confuse me with the facts. Now they say, Jesus, don't confuse me with your flesh. Why am I getting so excited? Don't confuse me with your flesh. You see, the statement that Jesus made in verse 51 here is what brought things to a head with his listeners. Especially his detractors. First of all, it is important to understand what the Lord means here by his flesh. It is not his literal body. That concept would be ridiculous. Jesus didn't come and say, I'm going to turn you all into cannibals. That's not what he said. That's not what he meant at all. His flesh is a metaphor that he used for his human nature. The totality of his life on the side of humanity. The giving of his flesh 
The giving of his flesh is a reference to his sacrificial death. It is a death that is both voluntary when he says, I will give. And it is also vicarious for the life of the world. I will give for the life of the world my flesh. I will give voluntary for the life of the world. Vicarious. What does it mean? What does vicarious mean? Well, it just means to act or serve in place of someone else or something else. To endure something by one person substituting for another as a vicarious punishment. Somebody taking punishment for what you did. That's vicarious. And it is, as Paul wrote simply in in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for us to understand. For he has made him to be sin for us. God the Father has made him, his son, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin. Jesus didn't know any sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's vicarious. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. He took our place. He's our grand substitute. One other thing to note is that Jesus was not talking about the partaking of communion. Let's please get that out of our minds here in this, in this chapter of, of, of John. He's not talking about communion. Communion doesn't get established really, uh, you know, as far as the church is concerned until much later. And we're not dealing really with, with uh, even, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, Passover or the Sabbath uh, meal or anything like, you know. This, he's simply talking about his body and his flesh and what he came to do. So you see, when, when, when certain sects in, in Christendom, you know, tell you, listen, when, when you partake of communion, you know, it's because of what Jesus said here in John chapter 6, it's all wrong. Because they have established a, 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 a doctrine of sorts that, that, that really says that when you partake of communion, you take this simple piece of bread and, the, and from the cup, and, and actually those things turn into the body and blood of Christ. No, that's ridiculous. That's not even anything that Jesus meant to say. Jesus' reference to his flesh needs to be understood with the clarity that we see mentioned in Hebrews chapter 10, where the Lord speaks of our present and unhindered access into his presence. Now, that was, that was a little clue there. We're going to Hebrews chapter 10. All right? So let's turn there. And let's look at verses 19 and 20, where Paul says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness, To enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, the veil, what is that? Well, that's the curtain. 
in the tabernacle or temple. So the Lord's flesh is identified with the veil in the temple or the tabernacle, but primarily in the temple because there was a temple at that time. And that veil represented all that Jesus was as God incarnate, God in the flesh. It was made of fine twined linen symbolizing his sinlessness and his righteousness. It was dyed blue, scarlet, and purple. The the blue symbolized his deity in that he came from heaven and is the Son of God. The scarlet symbolized his humanity. Scarlet is a deep red color. He was, Jesus was, the last Adam, the second man, the scriptures tell us. And we know that the name Adam literally means red. The purple, aside from being the color of royalty, in this case, also represented deity in humanity. Deity in humanity. Blue and red together makes purple. Jesus, in other words, was God manifest in the flesh. The veil in both the temple and the tabernacle hung between the holy place where the priests ministered and the holy of holies where God was enthroned in the covered glory cloud on the mercy seat between the cherubim. The mercy seat, of course, was, was really the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was, was this lid, this, this uh, seat, as it were, where two angels faced each other, two cherubim. And that was in the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could enter in. Kavod is, is really the glory of God. The, that's the, the more correct Hebrew word. Uh, most people use the word Shekinah or Shekinah of glory of God, which is more of a mystical word and all, but it is a word that is used. Either way, either way, that veil had one message. The veil had one message. You know what that message was? Keep out. Keep out. It was an impassable barrier between human beings in their sinful state and God in His holiness. The veil represented the flawless, the perfect life of Jesus. And that, as one commentator put it, is our greatest indictment. None of us are perfect. None of us are holy. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. The veil demonstrated that the life of sinless perfection which God has every right to demand of us and which we cannot live has been lived by the man Jesus Christ. 
I want you to consider that 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 life of Jesus actually condemns us. Turn to Romans chapter 8 verse 3 and notice what it says. It says, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Notice, in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, you can see him, but he wasn't sinful. But you could see him and you could touch him. So he says, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh. Well, that's us, sin in the flesh. You see, his life condemned us. But the greatest tragedy, the greatest tragedy would have been for Jesus to come to this earth, to live a sinless life, to set before us a matchless, incomparable example of life as God intends it to be lived, and then immediately to return back to heaven. That would have been the greatest tragedy. For Jesus to come and give us this incomparable example of life, and then to return to heaven. That would be the lesson of an untorn veil. A veil that remained. A barrier that would say, keep out. But we know. (laughs) We know that that veil was torn into. It was torn into from top to bottom. And that when Jesus died on the cross, listen, Matthew 27, verses 50 and 51, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. In other words, he yielded up his spirit unto God when he died. But notice verse 51. And behold, The veil of the temple, the veil of the temple was rent in twain, which means it was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. In other words, even rocks were being busted out. But here it is, from top to bottom, it was like the hands of God just took that veil and just ripped it in half when Jesus died. And when this happened, it opened the way into God's presence in the Holy of Holies. When at last the Lord Jesus surrendered his life, when that veil was torn, everything that barred us from the one holy and true God was removed. And with these things in mind, Jesus said to those suspicious, critical religious leaders and people. He said, the bread that I will give. Just look at verse 51 in your Bibles. I hope you brought your Bibles. You could be looking up there. I'm going to put it up here just for you. Okay. All right. He said, the bread that I will give. The bread that I will give, pointing forward to his impending sacrifice at Calvary. The bread that I will give is my flesh 
which is his unique and sinless life as God manifest in the flesh. And then he said, which I will give, a repetition of the all-important fact of his death, for the life of the world, for the salvation of mankind, in order to impart to human beings the life of God, which is everlasting, eternal life. And what we have to do, what we have to do is eat this bread. Partake of the bread of life. That is, to understand Jesus as he presented himself in this metaphor. It is to personally, personally take and appropriate this bread. In other words, it is to personally accept and believe the truths, the facts, the facts of the Word of God that all point to Yeshua, or that all point to Jesus as the Mashiach of Israel, the Messiah. Take, accept, believe, trust. Depend upon, put your full weight of dependency upon Jesus Christ into your lives as a deliberate and volitional act. When Jesus says, come, come unto me. All you that labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. He's inviting us to come to him. To take of him. To give everything to him. To put the full weight of your burdens upon him. Who will lift you up. And tell you, you don't have to do this by yourself. Besides, you can't save yourself. No matter how much good you can do in this life, you cannot do enough good to get yourself into heaven. No one can. It doesn't matter what you put on. You know, you put on all kinds of robes and you can try to, you know, live some kind of monastic life. That's not going to cut it. It's not what it's about. You've missed the boat. You've missed understanding what Jesus was saying. Come to me. I know it's early. I could fill up all this time. But I'm going to give you one last scripture here for today anyway. Who knows, maybe we can stay another few minutes with this. But I point you to John chapter 11, verse 26, and, 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 and listen to what Jesus says. He said, whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die, which is what we've been hearing from the Lord all, already. But I want you to focus on the question he asks at the end of that statement. He says, believest thou this? Believest thou this? Do you believe? Do you believe this? 
Do you believe anything that Jesus has said to you in his word? For Jesus to pose that question, as he poses it to us today, is to get us to examine ourselves as to where we are in Christ and where Christ is in us. Do you believe this? Honestly, today I wonder when people are more concerned about you know, touchy-feely, make, feel, maybe make, make people feel good kind of thing, you know, and just, you know, we, we just want you to be happy. Oh, God just loves you so much, He just wants you to be happy, and He wants you to be prosperous, He wants you to have this, and He wants you to have that. Folks, listen, we're not happy here. Why? Because we're not of this world. He wants, to be, he wants us to be filled with the joy of the kingdom of God. He wants us to know that there is some place better than what we see you know, happening all around us today. This world is, is imploding. You know, it's funny. This world is imploding and exploding at the same time. But Jesus said, I'm coming again. And I'm coming to get you and take you with me so that where I am, there you'll be also. Now, here's another question. Believest thou this? <laughs> you need to believe the things that Jesus is saying because now they have become even more important, more significant, more relevant because of the days and times in which we live. Paul said we're living in perilous times, perilous times, fierce times. Dangerous times. And the word for perilous there in the Greek means violent times. Look at the violence all around us. Is this not an indication that the word of God is true and it is accurate? That two, nearly 2,000 years ago these things were prophesied and now they are as the apostle said, as Jesus himself said. When we live in times of, of, of great iniquity and lawlessness and the love of many shall wax cold, we have to believe what Jesus is saying about himself. That when he says, I am the bread of life, he that comes to me and believes in me, partakes of me, takes in totally what Jesus has said of himself for our good and, believe, and we believe it, then we stand upon it and we trust it and we live it. He says, then you shall have eternal life and you will live forever. Believe it. Believe it. Because Jesus said it. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord. We thank you that we don't have to labor 
for the meat which perishes, but for that which endures unto everlasting life, which your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, gave unto us. And we thank you, Lord, that you have sealed us by the Holy Spirit. But I pray for those who to this day are yet wondering or curious as to where they stand with you. And Lord, I just pray that they will realize, Lord, that simply because of the times in which we live, the Word of God is indeed true. And if that is the case, then everything that Jesus has said about Himself is true and we need to come to Him today. I pray, Father, that they will respond to You. Those who need You will respond to You. and They don't have to wait for any major holiday. They can receive Jesus today. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And so I pray, Father, that people will come to you at last and put aside all of what they might have thought being a Christian was about and realize that it's not about us. It's about Jesus and about everything that he's done. So, Father, I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would move mightily upon the hearts of those who need you right now and bless them to come and say, I need Jesus in my life. Change us, O God, and move us in that direction where we, Lord God, will continue to move toward you until the day of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.